Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity to look at your word and see what you'd have us to see. We ask your spirit to guide and lead us and help us to learn something that is of value for us. In Jesus' name, amen. First Samuel chapter 8. We're continuing. Remember last week, the people of Israel repented after their defeat to the Philistines. And Samuel prayed for them and they made offering and then they defeated the Philistines and pushed them all the way back to the coast where they belonged and uh, had great, great victory in, the, in that. Chapter 8, starting at verse 1. And it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. Now the name of the firstborn was Joel, the name of the second was Abihah, and they were judges in Beersheba. And his sons walked not after his ways, but turned aside after lucre and took bribes and perverted judgment. Then all the elders of Israel gathered themselves together and came to Samuel and to Ramoth and said unto him, Samuel, you are old and your sons walk not in your ways. Make, now make us a king to judge us like all nations. Okay, so we're looking here and Samuel's getting old and we know that he's not extremely old because he's going to live the whole reign of Saul, which is, which is uh, well, most of the reign of Saul, which is 40 years. So he's got a long life still ahead of him. But, so I don't know what old, is old, old means at this point. But he's getting old enough that he is not running the circuit. Remember we talked last week, he, ran a, he rode a circuit between, four, between three cities and judged Israel. So he's getting old enough, he can't do that. So he decides, I'm going to have my sons help me out in this endeavor. And it says that his sons were named Joel and Abiai, and they judged over Beersheba, but his sons walked not in his way. Now this sounds kind of familiar because at the beginning of the book, in uh, chapter 2, it said Eli's sons were after the sons of Belial, which means Satan for all practical purposes. They, they were doing everything wrong and we find out that Samuel's sons aren't doing any better. And he's wanting to keep his legacy going. And you know, one of the things that we see when we look at history of many all through the Bible and of other places is we have a very strong Christian believer. Usually their first generation sons or daughters do okay. By the second or third generation, a lot of times they're not following God at all because they never make it a personal decision. And this is something I've seen over and over where you've got a very strong mom or dad that is raising their kids but the kids never make it a personal decision to follow God. It's kind of like, well, they get old enough, I go, well, I don't know if I believe mom and dad's beliefs. I'm going to go do whatever. Samuel's sons are doing that. Eli's sons are doing that. And every once in a while, you get long generations of families that one right after another follow and keep following God because it becomes very real to them. And as good a man as Samuel is, he doesn't seem to have done a good job passing on God to his sons. Eli did not do a good job passing on God to his sons. Isaac did not do a good job passing his son, passing on to Jacob. Now Jacob later on in life turned to God, uh, and we can see that happen. You know, God's word does not return void. A lot of times these people turn away from God during their young life, and when they get old they realize, well, I should have believed what mom and dad taught me. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Um, we see all of this going on. And, you know, having said that, we want to be careful. It's not always the parents' fault. 
You've got Jacob who's following God. He raises Joseph who follows God with all of his heart. And yet his 11 brothers aren't very good guys, especially the older ones. We don't, Benjamin's not talked about a lot because he's kind of outside the story. He's the little, little guy when, when Joseph is sold into slavery by 10 of his brothers. And so we see that this happens. It doesn't matter what we do as parents. We can only do the best we can to raise our children to follow God and hope that they're going to follow. The church can only do so much to be able to train people to follow God and it's up to individuals what they want to do with God. And it's tough. When I've taught young adults, it's been, you need to make the decision, or even teenagers, you need to make the decision, are you going to believe in God for yourself? Because there always has to be a point in somebody's life where they have to make a decision. Do I believe in God? Or am I just been made to go to church? Or do I, you know, have I just gone to church and I don't really believe it? And there comes this time where you need to make a decision. And his sons made a decision. They weren't going to follow God. And what did it say they did? They turned aside to lucre, which is money, and took bribes. In other words, they were bad judges. <laughs> Whoever paid them the most won the case. And they were not being honest. They were not being, and they perverted judgment. They were not honest men. And the people got tired of it which is going to be a common thing. When the government or when leaders start turning aside from righteousness, the people get tired of it and upset about it. And depending on where, what government you have and how easy it is to overthrow it, it's, it, but the people here are saying, we don't want any more judges. <laughs> okay? We're tired of judges. They, they look back over the history of judges where they would start following God and then they'd fall away and get judged. And right now they're in a, Theoretically, revival period. Remember, they just won this battle and repented. So they're on a high side with God. And they're coming to Samuel and saying, hey, your sons are worthless. We don't want, we don't want judges anymore. And we don't want, and we want, and it says, we want a king. And look for the reason why they wanted it. Now make us a king to judge us like all nations. Basically, they're saying, we want to be like everybody else. And this is something that happens so often to us as Christians. God says we're called to be separated and, and different and to be righteous. And yet, oftentimes, we fall right back into the sins because it's hard to be different. It, in many ways, it's hard to be a Christian when you face criticism and attacks because you're not like everybody else. And we need to be able to say, God, give me the strength, and I want to be yours. Because being a Christian means that we're going to be different from the world. And there's lots of people in the world that want to be different. And I, I can remember when I was growing up in the, in the 70s, when long hair was big on men and everything, and it was a big battle between the older, older generation for short hair and, and young guys wanting their long hair, and the parents were not for it. I liked long hair of short hair, okay? I had no problem with short hair. My dad didn't make me get my haircuts. I liked having short hair. I had more people in school telling me, well, you need to, get, you need to grow your hair long, and I'd go, why, to be different? I'd look around, and say, I am. I'm different from all of you. <laughs> you know, I don't need to have long hair to be, to be different. I mean, my short hair makes me different. That wasn't the only thing that made me different, obviously, <laughs> but, you know, but, you know, the world in general likes to run in packs. Now, you get some people that are jump out and try to 
you know, create trends and be countercultural and all of that. But what ends up happening is their counterculture ends up being the norm. Right now, as Christians, we are actually countercultural to our world. If we want to live a righteous life and live godly, we're living very different from the rest of the world who are actively pursuing sin and actively trying to fit in. And we see it all over the place, you know. Well, you know, I only, I only get drunk once or twice a month, you know. My friends are all getting drunk every night or every day. I only get drunk, tw- you know, twice a month. You know, I only, I only get stoned, you know, a uh, couple times a month, you know. I only sleep around, you know, most of the time, but not all the time like my friends, you know. You know but this is the way the Christian world is living. Instead of, I'm going to live for Christ and I'm going to set my life different. And it's not easy. It, it, Christianity is not for cowards in, you know, at this point in time. If you're going to live a Christian life, you're going to be different from everybody else and you're going to be the, the target, sometimes even of your own friends. Well, you know, you, you're no fun to be around because you never do. You, know, you never do all these things, and especially if they're not saved. Well, you've changed so much. You're, you're not out going to the, to the bars. You're not out doing this. You're not out doing this, whatever, you know, this thing or that thing, whatever it was that you're doing. And here the people are saying, we want to be like the world. Now, everybody else has a king, Samuel. We, wanna, we want a king. Now, we don't want God as our king because God said he was their king. We want a human being sitting on a throne to be our king. And they're basically saying, God, we don't like your way of doing things. And it's going to cause them problems. And we're going to see this as we go along. And we, as you read further into this, you see how big, how big a problem the kings are going to be. Verse 6. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed unto the Lord. And the Lord said unto Samuel, Hearken unto the voice of the people in all that they say unto you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. According to all the words, works which they have done since the day which I brought them out of Egypt, even unto this day wherein, wherewith they have forsaken me to serve and served other gods, so do they also unto you. Now therefore hearken unto their voice, howbeit yet protest solemnly unto them and show them the manner of the king that shall reign over them. So God tells Samuel, they're not rejecting you. Because this is really, to Samuel, this is a huge rejection. He is the judge. He hasn't died yet. So basically what they're saying is, Samuel, we don't want you. What they're saying is, we don't want your sons. But he's taking it very personal and saying, you know, you've rejected me. And God says, no, Samuel, they haven't rejected you. They're rejecting me. And this is the problem we need to always keep in mind as Christians. When people come against us, it's not usually us that it's, they're rejecting. It's God that's being revealed through us that they're rejecting. When you bring God into a situation, you, and I've said this before, you don't even have to say anything if you're a strong Christian. You bring God everywhere you go when you're following him, when, you're, when he's living inside you and you're living according to his way, everything you do brings him in front of, in front of them. Some people get very angry about the presence of God in their darkness because they don't like the light, they don't like the conviction, they don't like the trials that it brings. Other people get drawn to it because they see something that's very different. And we see this over and over. I get to a lot of people who don't want to have anything to do with me you know, around my life. You know, you're, you're just strange, you're, you're weird, you, you know, you're not doing anything we do and 
You know, by the way, we don't even like it when you're around. And you don't have to necessarily say anything. You know, it's amazing sometimes how people will react. And when people will swear or curse around me, they go, sorry. That's even if they don't know I'm a pastor. There's just something about God in that position that they go, no, can't do this in front of God. I'm going, you're, you know, I had one guy said, we've got to be, you know, found out as a pastor, oh, I've got to be careful what I say around you. And I go, it doesn't matter what you say around me. God is the one you're going to be offending, not me. And God's with you all the time. And we need to make sure people understand that. And here God's saying, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me, that I should not reign over them. And this is a serious place for them to say, God, we're not, we're not wanting you. Now they're looking at it where they're trying to reject Samuel's sons, but they want to be like the rest of the world. And we've got to be careful as Christians that we don't get so like the world that nobody recognizes Christ. We are ambassadors. We are, are temporarily in this world, and it's not our home. We can't live the way the world lives. And the church is being drawn more and more into the way the world lives. Okay? We've got fornication as strong in the Christian church as it is in the, in the regular world, you know, be, living together. We've got adultery that is, you know, and divorce as strong as the rest of the world. You know, we've got homosexuality in, in many churches. We've got all these different sins that go on and as strong in the church because they're not wanting God to be the one ruling over them. And it's a serious place to be. To want to be like the world. We are to be salt and light. Light reveals their sin and shows the path to walk in. And that's why most people don't like to be around a good Christian. Because we bring light. And sin does not like light. Sin wants darkness. Which is why at nighttime more bad things happen than during the daytime. And not that nothing happens during the daytime. But if, you want to, if you're tracking crime, most crime happens at night. Yes, some, some happens during the daytime, especially when nobody's at a house or something, but most of, the, most of this crime and sin happens at night when it is dark because sin likes darkness. And when we as Christians bring in light into somebody's life, they get irritated. And sometimes they get mad and will strike out at us. Then, on top of that, we bring salt. Now, if you've ever cooked, you know a little bit of salt adds flavor. Restaurants make their food very salty for one reason. They want to sell drinks. So they put a lot of salt in it so people will drink more. It's not as big a deal anymore now that they get all the free sodas and everything, but back in the, back in the day when you paid for every soda, you paid for you know, everything but water, you, they put salt in it to make you drink more. Salt creates thirst, thirst for God, hopefully, and that's what we're to bring. We also bring salt into the world that brings preservatives. When you, in, before refrigeration, they used to salt their meat to keep it from going bad too quickly. It would still go bad, but you could make it last longer. Now, it tasted terrible, you had to soak it for a long time to get the salt out of it, but we as salt into this world bring bring in that preservative. We bring in healing. God's word is a salt. Sometimes it brings healing into our lives. And if you've ever put salt on a wound, it, it'll heal a wound, but it hurts. Okay, it causes pain. You know that it's getting in there, but it does bring healing. It's a very harsh way to bring healing, but it does. It works. And salt for a long time was used as a, as a protective on wounds. 
So we see they're rejecting all of this. They're rejecting God. They're rejecting his light. They're rejecting his, his truth. And basically saying, we're going to just be like the world. And God says, well, verse 8, according to their works, they have done since the day that I brought them out of Egypt. You know, they've been rejecting me ever since Egypt, uh, Samuel, for 400, 500 years now. They've been rejecting me, so they're not rejecting you. And he goes all the way back to Egypt. He goes, they haven't even crossed the Red Sea. They're not even out of Egypt. And remember, they're going, Moses, did you bring us out here so we could die because there wasn't any graves in, in Egypt? You know, Pharaoh's going to kill us, and we're standing out here by the Red Sea. They get across the Red Sea, and within a day or two, they're murmuring that they don't have enough water. Then they're murmuring that they don't have enough food. Then, you know, they're all, you know, Moses goes up on the mountain, spends 40 days getting the law, comes down, and they're worshiping a golden calf. They're not even gone for, for more than a couple months, and they're already rejecting God. 40 years in the wilderness, they're rejecting God every time they turn around. That's with Moses leading them. He was as close as a to the thing they had to a king before, before they had got a king. Okay? He ruled. He judged. He did everything for them. And yet, God says, even when you guys you know, left Egypt, you've been rejecting me all this time. Isn't it wonderful that God gives us grace? <laughs> you know, he gives us his grace because we're no better than the, the Jewish people. We turn away from God so often. Even if it's for short periods of time, sometimes people are long periods of time where they rejected God. Other times it's very short. Might only be for a couple hours before you repent. It might be days, it might be weeks. Hopefully not decades. <laughs> but you know, I've seen people who have done that, turned away from God. I don't know whether they're saved or not. Only they will know if it was a real event that got them saved in the first place. But you know, to walk away from God that long is a pretty serious event. And here they are, they're saying, you know, God's saying, you know, you've walked away from me since Egypt and you've served other gods. Because every time I come along, you're serving other gods. And remember in the book of, book of Judges, they were following along. They were following, they were worshiping Baal. They were worshiping Astora. They were worshiping all these other gods, Malak and all these gods. And he says, I don't know what I'm going to do with you guys because you keep worshiping other gods. And remember in the previous chapter, Samuel said, get rid of your gods. So they got rid of their Astoras and, and their Baals. And here they are, God saying, oh, this is the way they've been. Just let them, let them go. Let them learn the hard way. God is always willing to let us learn the hard way if that's the way we want to learn. And unfortunately, most people have to learn the hard way. Because as much as we like to think I can learn the easy way, I can learn from other people's mistakes. Um, the burning your hand on the, on the stove or the oven or the fire works a lot faster than being told the, that it's hot. And it's really sad, but most people have to learn the hard way. Now, all of us will learn some things the easy way. We watch somebody really get hurt. But how many times have you met somebody said, well, I'm never going to be like my mom or dad. I'm not going to raise my kids the same way. And we find ourselves doing exactly what they did. But it's the only way we know how to do it is what we saw unless we get somebody to mentor us or train us to do something otherwise. And this is why, especially in churches, we need to seek out. If you want to learn something, and I've said this so many times, if you want to learn something, look for somebody in the church who's been successful at it and ask for their help. You know, go, you know, I want to learn how to study the Bible better, to pray, to, to witness, to, 
to have a better marriage, to whatever it might be. You know, I was talking to somebody just the other day. You know, my wife and I are coming up on our 37th anniversary in December. And they're going, wow, that's a long time. I go, no, we're just getting started. They go, well, that's a long time. I go, no, you're not comparing yourself to the same people I compare myself to. I'm looking at other church people that I know that are 50, 60 years married and saying, when I get there, then I'll start thinking that I've been married for a while. Now, I'm getting to a place where I no longer say we're newlyweds. I stopped that at about 30. <laughs> you know, up to 20, between 20 and 30, you know, before 20, it was like, we're just getting started. You know, we're just getting started. We got a long ways to go. But you know, what is our attitude? Are we working on being able to say, I want to do something different? Do I want to live the right way, the way God says to? And we go into God's word and we say, God, what do you want? We seek other people to mentor us and say, God, help me find people that can help me learn to do whatever it is you want to do. And whatever it is you want to do God's way. Because having somebody who you think is successful is a great person to go talk to. And I've done this over my lifetime. You know, show me how you study. Show me how you do this. Show me how to, you know, show me how to knock on doors. You know, we, we used to knock on doors all the time in one church. So I, I went with a guy who was, seemed to be the best at it. And I was young at the time. I wanted to know. I wanted to learn. How, how do you do this? What do you do? How do you do street evangelism? How, how do you accomplish these things? And go do it. You know, find somebody who can help you do it and go do it. You know, and this is what, you know, they're rejecting God. and says, says they don't, we don't want God. And, you know, and then God says, listen to them, but tell them what a king will be like. And we're going to look at what he says the king will be like. Verse 10, and Samuel told all the words of the Lord unto the people that asked of a king. And he said, this will be the manner of the king that shall reign over you. He shall take your sons and appoint them for himself, for his chariots, and for to be his horsemen, and some will run before his chariots, and he will appoint him captains over thousands and captains over fifties, and will set them to ear his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his instruments of war and instruments for his chariots. And he will take your daughters to be confectionaries and to be cooks and to be bakers, and he will take your fields and your vineyards, your olive yards, even the best of them, and give them to his servants, and he will take a tenth of your seed and your vineyards and give to his officers and to his servants. And he will take your men's servants and your maidservants and your, and your best young men and your, and your donkeys and put them to work. He will take a tenth of your sheep and, and you shall be his servants. All right. Well, let's read it. And you shall cry out in that day because of your king which you have chosen for of you. And the Lord will not hear you in that day. All right, when we read this, this comes straight out of Deuteronomy chapter 17. When God was talking to Moses, he basically told them, there's going to come a day that you are going to choose, want a king. And you want to tell, people want to tell us that the Bible is, does, is not written by God and all that, all these future things in the Bible. In Deuteronomy, 500 years before this event, God says, there's going to come a day when you guys are going to ask for the king, and these restrictions come right out of Deuteronomy chapter 17, starting around verse 14, for those who are looking it up. <laughs> and it goes in, and it's pretty much straightforward. This is what he's doing. Now, when I read this, does anybody, 
Did anybody get a picture of what this was actually saying? Going to be servants, but specifically what kind of servants? Well, slaves, but who asks for 10% of everything they have? Who asks for the best of everything they have? God. He says, your king is going to be your God. He's going to require, maybe not be your God, but he's going to require what God is supposed to get. Very serious issue, and this is what he's trying to tell them. He's telling them, you want a king, the king is going to demand what is God's. Which now means they have to give 10, 20%. They've got to give God his 20, 10% and give the government their 10%. And if that was all they asked for, it would be much better. But, you know, uh, even in the Bible, they didn't always ask for just 10%. But basically he's saying they want everything that would belong to God. And we're going to look at what, they're, what, they're, what he's telling them. He goes, you want a king? This is what's going to happen. He will take your sons and daughters. He will point them to himself for his chariots, for his horsemen, and for his, to run before his chariots. In other words, he's going to create an army. And he's going to take your children and put them in his service. All right? And in their, in a king, when you were with a king, you didn't have an option on whether you were going to be in the army or not. If the king called you or conscripted you, you were in the army. Much like a draft, but it wasn't even a draft. It was like they would go through the town and say, okay, we need five people, you, you, and you. <laughs> Didn't matter who you were, what you were doing, or anything, you were just picked and taken away. England did this for a long time, especially in the Navy. If, you know, you got Shanghai out, out of the docks. You, were on, you, know, you didn't go anywhere near a dock when a British ship was on dock, because if you were down near the docks, you might end up being a sailor. And once you were gone, you, you were only on a sailor for a short trip, but their short trips were like six years. And usually when they docked back in, they didn't let you get off the boat. So you went back on the next six-year, you know, multi-year trip. If you got made a sailor, you were a sailor for the rest of your life. You know, and that's just the way it was. And this is what he's saying. They're going to take, they're just going to pick your sons and daughters. And just going to take them. And then, then he says he will take, you know, he will appoint captains over, over thousands, captains over fifties, and, and will set them to ear his ground or to plant his cro crops and to reap his har harvest and to make instruments of war and instruments for his chariots. So he says he's also going to take the best farmers. He's going to take the best carpenters, the best blacksmiths. You know, he's given a warning. Your best will go to the king. Because kings, kings and government always take the best. And, you know, Malachi tells us, you know, you've, you've been offering your secondhand animals, your blind and your lame and your maimed animals to God. Would you do so to the king? Answer, no. Because the king would not accept it. And they're going, why would you give it to God? And he's saying, the king is going to take the best. He's, he's, and what he's going to do is they're working for him instead of for you. You've trained your son and daughters to, to do these things, to be blacksmiths, to be um, wood, woodsmen, and, and as it gets into the daughters, to be the cooks, to be the, the bakers. He says he's going to take the best. He's going to find somebody who, who's good at what they do and take them. And again, this is what God said. God said when he took the Levites, he goes, all the firstborn belong to me, but I will take the tribe of Levi instead of taking all the firstborns. All right? So God says, okay, every firstborn is mine, but, but I'll just take all the Levites and you know, they'll, they'll all be mine and you guys can keep your firstborn. 
Why? Because the firstborn is the most precious one in the family, usually. They're the one that, this is, this is my first. <laughs> this, is, this is my firstborn. Firstborn gets the double portion and all of that. And God says, we'll let you keep your firstborn. I'll just take the entire, this entire nation. But he says here, the king's going to take your best. Not necessarily firstborn, but your best. The best at each area. And yet, the people aren't listening. Okay, all right, so we're, so we're going to lose our, our best. We'll still have a king. How many times do we make a decision that's short, so short-sighted? Well, God, I think this is the best for today. I know it may be a problem later on. Uh, Hezekiah was told that because he asked of God long life that he would, he would see problems in the next generation, and his attitude was, thank God I'm alive and... You know, yeah, the, the people will suffer later on, but I, I'm okay. What a sad way to be, especially as a leader. We be, need to be careful of that. God, what is best? Last night I was watching Tortured for Christ, which is the Richard Warmbrandt story. And, you know, he said every one of these guys that were tortured that he knew praised God that they were worthy of suffering and that they had... They were giving their life to God. And I thought about that, because I've been talking about that off and on, you know, is that our attitude? Is our attitude when we suffer, thank God I'm suffering for Christ, or is it, God, when is this this going to get over with? You know, this is awful and terrible, and I don't want to do this. The disciples all the time were saying, thank God I was worthy of suffering for Christ. Now, if you're suffering because of bad things you do, then you deserve what you get, and it's not, you can gripe about it all you want, but when you're suffering for God, you just say, thank you. Not, not for the suffering, but that God found you worthy of suffering. Because when we suffer, that's the time when it's easy to just say, God, I give up. Because we hear it all the time from the lost world. Why did God let this happen? Why did God let that happen? Well, he let it happen because there's sin in the world and there's consequence for sin. And, well, why did he let the innocent suffer? Well, we've got to go back to the Bible and say there's no innocence. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, including the little babies. Now, it's not necessarily fair that when things seem, at least from our perspective, but they're not innocents. And we've got to be careful of when we think about, you know, look at all these innocent people that died. You know, and this is something I've said so many times. You know, so many people go, why do good people suffer? And I said, that's the wrong question. We need to ask, why do bad people get blessed? Because we're all bad, we're all evil, and God blesses us as Christians and the world. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. They get blessed, and evil falls on the blessed, the just and the unjust, and bad things happen to the just. Not because, not because we don't deserve it, we do deserve it. It's better that you know, God gives us great blessing in the process. He gives us the strength to go through the trials that come our way. And we, we have a great hope because we get to rest on him. Now, we have one life to give to God. And we need to keep that in mind that it's his. Our life is his. However long I live, it's because he wants me to live. The moment he doesn't want me to live anymore, I'm going home. No matter what I try to do. Okay? No matter how healthy I try to eat and how many you know, herbs and vitamins and exercise I do, when it's time to, when it's time to go home, I'm going to go home. 
right? And no matter where I'm at, I'm not going to die until God's ready. Now, I may have some physical pain for being in the wrong places and, and doing the wrong things, okay? If I put myself in a dangerous place that God doesn't want me at, I may end up in a hospital and get a lot of physical pain. If, it, if it's not my time to die, I won't die, but I may be in a lot of pain. And that's why I used to tell everybody, the worst thing you can do to me is almost kill me. You kill me, I get to go home. Thank you, you know. Uh, and that was one of the things Richard Burnbrand said in the, in, the, in the movie. He goes, the guy was saying, you know, I, I can shoot you. And he goes, yeah, you can shoot me, but all you do is help me, help me get to the one I love faster. Yeah. And this is where we're at. What is our attitude toward God? Do we say, God, you are sovereign, you're in control no matter what comes my way? Or am I griping and complaining about everything that comes my way, not, not having any joy in the Lord, not enjoying life at all? Now, I'm not going to say that every bit of life is going to be something you're going to have fun with. There's going to be times when it's going to be hard. That's when you just look to God and say, God, you've got a reason. You've got a purpose. And there's an inward joy that comes out of that. God, don't know what that joy, don't know what that purpose is. I'm hurting. You might even have tears and still have joy. And, and sorrow and still have joy in your heart deep down. God, you're in control. When Job was going through everything he was going through, losing everything and his kids, there was no joy in his heart, uh, no happiness in his heart. God, I have lost everything. You have lost my kids, and now you've taken my health away. And here, here in misery, and it says he was scraping off the sores with the pot shear. He was not happy with his position. But he also understood God has a purpose. Didn't understand it, but he knew God had a purpose. And that's our greatest fact, is when we are in a place where we don't see how anything good can be happening out of it, we go, God, you've promised. And that's my, that's my quote to God a lot of times. God, you've promised good. I don't understand what's going on or how it's going to be for good, but you have promised everything works together for good. And you are a good God. You've got something good in, in store. Now, what that good is, I don't know. Those, those Romanians who died in the, in the concentration camps of torture, I don't know what was good about that. Their testimony went out to the world to say this is how, you, how Christians die. Fox's Book of Martyrs full of people that have died for Christ. So their testimony lives on. The millions and billions who didn't make it into books and stories, I don't know what, what happened with them. But God says, I've got a good plan. I know what's going on, and it's for good. Usually when people die, something good does come out of it. When a Christian dies and they die faithfully, something happens. When, when uh, Elliot died in the jungles of Ecuador to the savage Indians, eventually the Indians came out and said, you know, we need to know about this God that he was trying to teach us about. And his wife and his kids and another the other a wife of one of the missionaries went and lived with these guys that had killed their husbands and taught them about Jesus and changed the tribe. You know, it's just a story we know. How many times has something like that happened and we don't hear the story? We don't hear the story because it just never makes the news, never makes a book, never, never gets to America for a book to be made out of or somebody to make money on. Uh, but you know, God has a purpose. Rome was changed because of Christianity where cr crazy Christians would go into a, a town with plague and minister to the people when everybody else was leaving the town that wasn't sick. 
And they would say, we're going we're gonna to take our chances. We're going we're gonna to minister Christ's love to you. And people would get saved. And people would look at them like they're, they're absolutely crazy from the outside, but it, you know, what's wrong with these guys? They're, they're nuts. But they have a God that they say can protect them. You know, the world has been changed by God being lifted up. Even when they died, even when they have died, they have been lifted up and God has been lifted up and people go, they, they died for something. They died for something they believed in with great strength and dignity. And we live that way. We live in a way that says, I am going to live the way God wants me to. And the world looks at us and says, you guys are just a bunch of weird people. You know, how can you go through that trial without going out and getting drunk or, or getting wasted on, on the drugs? You know, or you know, I don't understand. You know, if, you know, when those things happen to me, I've, gotta, I've just got to close off my mind and totally, totally lose consciousness, even if it's only for a short time. And most people that are into alcohol and drugs know it's only for a short time, but they want that couple hours. That couple hours where they don't have to feel whatever is bothering them. And they keep doing it until the point when they get addicted, and then they're just doing it because they're addicted. But you know, God is our way of being able to just have that faithfulness. You know, just saying, God, thank you. Thank you for what you're allowing me to do. How, who is going to be touched? I don't know. You know. I've told you all, it's amazing what will happen when people look at your life and they go, wow, they went through this so well. I don't know how they did it, but it, it was God. I had an event in my life where that happened. A year and a half later, the people, a person came up to me and said, you really encouraged me to keep following God when you were in so much pain and you kept serving God. It made me realize that my pain was nothing and serve God. You, we never know what people are seeing. We never do. And I love that God does this for us. You know, we're going to get to heaven, and we're going to, you know, these, all these people say, well, I never did anything for God. Well, if you were faithful, you've done more for God than you think you've done. People look at your life, and they're watching you. you know, you've got neighbors that watch you when you come to church every week, faithfully. And they're going, don't know what they're doing at that church, what's going on, but you know, they're very faithful to it. They're not, they're not missing it very often, hopefully, or, or at all. You know, you know the, these crazy Christians, you know, the, the police aren't at their house once a month, you know, breaking up fights and arguments. You know, uh, there must be something in what they believe. You know, people are impressed. When we go through trials and tribulations and we have smiles on our faces most of the time, people notice. And eventually they'll go, what is it that you have? You know, I don't, I don't understand this. You always seem to be joyful. You always seem to be happy. I've always loved that comment. I've always loved that question. Been getting it for over 40 years, and I love it because it goes, let me tell you why. <laughs> let me tell you about God who gives me this joy to make it through all these hard, hard, hard events. Yeah, and it's wonderful when we do this. Uh, he goes on, it says in verse 14, and he will take your fields and your vineyards and your olive tree and the best of them and give them to his servants. He goes, he's going to take the best of the, best of the fields. And any farmer knows he's got certain fields that are really good and certain fields that have too much rocks or not enough, not enough of the right stuff in it and don't grow as much. And he says, your king is going to take the best. He's going to be wandering around, seeing a good field and taking it. And saying, this is mine now. You know, now hopefully he gives them compensation for it, but 
doesn't have to. He's king. And as far as that goes, he says, he will take a tenth of your seed and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and his servants. And it's going to the tithe. And this is where it should really hit them. God is taking, um, the king will take what belongs to God. The best of their harvest was supposed to go to God. One tenth of your harvest of your harvest was to go to God. And it was supposed to be the best. And it says the king's going to take that tenth. So you can't even give the king God what's supposed to be his because the king has taken it. And then you have to give God seconds, the second 10%. And we're going to find out they probably didn't even give God his 10% at all because the king is in, in business now taking their 10%. He will take your, your men servants, your maid servants, and your best young men, the donkeys, and, and put them to work. He will take a tenth of your sheep, and you shall be his servants. Okay? He's going to take a tenth of everything, and by the way, you will be his servants. You will be his his people to command. And all of this should have gotten their attention. It doesn't. Okay, None of this gets their attention. They all are sitting there like, okay, but we want a king. We want a king. And the unfortunate thing is we do this so often in our own lives. God, I really want to do this. And God says, well, this is the consequences. This is, I say, don't do this. God, I really want to do it. And God says, I don't want you to do it. I don't want you to, there's consequences for it. God, I really want to do it. And, and God will show us the consequences. We'll read the Bible stories. We'll read the, you know, the people who have been judged. And we'll fall right into it and be the servant of, slave, of sin. Because we're so focused on, I want. Human beings are very short-sighted. We look into the immediate future and what we think is going to happen if we do something, and we'll walk right into it, even if we know, even if we know it's going to be bad. It's the person going out and saying, oh, I haven't had a drink for years, but I'm going to go out and get, get wasted tonight because things are so bad. I can, I can handle the hangover. I can handle being the fool and not knowing what I was doing, and then find out that what they were even thinking they could handle wasn't even the tip of the iceberg of the results. And you know, we see this all the time. They get into an accident. They, they you know, do something really stupid. You know, they go out and have an affair and end up getting, getting a, uh, AIDS or another STD. You know, they, you know, they do all kinds of crazy things because they want it. They want it so bad, I'm going to do what I want to do. And when we obey God, we avoid a lot of consequences. Well, we, better yet, we have good consequences <laughs> through obedience of God. Because sin has consequences, and it has more consequences than we ever want. Always. It always has consequences that we never even think of or plan on. Because all of us will kind of think, well, you know, if I did, then the worst that's going to happen is this. And God says, no, you don't even know the worst that's going to happen. And so often we're blinded by what we want to do. And we just get our minds so focused and so tunnel visioned on, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. What did I do this for? <laughs> you know, why did I do this? And then we'll come up with, some, well, you know, I just found myself in this sin. No, you very clearly made a whole bunch of choices that got you there. Very rarely do we find ourselves committing a sin. We made a series of choices that usually brings us to it. Now, I'm not going to say it's impossible to all of a sudden be walking down the road and, and having the sin, you know, 
opportunity pop out, at, pop out at you, but that also means that you aren't in the right place with God in the first place. So again, a series of choices put you in a place where you say, okay, God, I'm going to just commit this sin. Or you don't even say, okay, God, you just do it. Because you've moved away from him, moved away from him. It, the more we're in tune with God, the less we're going to sin because the more he's going, we're going to be focused on him. The times I have trouble in my life are when I'm not in God's word. I'm not fellowshipping with him. I'm not opening my day in prayer. I'm not you know, seeking after God on that day. Those are the days when things get really tough. The day that I, my alarm clock doesn't go off or I push the snooze button way too many times and, and get a late start and all of a sudden I'm running around and playing catch up. Didn't read my Bible, didn't pray, uh, and well, not focused on God. And boy, those days are hard. Don't have a whole lot of them, but I get a few of them. You know, those are the days that are really hard because I'm not focused on God and Satan says, okay, I've got you. I've got the opportunity now. I've got the opportunity to get you. And in come the trials, in come the temptations. The more we're in God's word, the more we're in fellowship with his people, the more we're hanging out with God's people, the less troubles we're going to have because Satan doesn't have the opportunity to get in there as easily. You know, uh, the old adage, birds of a feather flock together, is, is true. If you're hanging out with the wrong people, you're going to do what they're doing eventually. You may be strong. You may last... Uh, 30 or 40 minutes. You might even last a day or two or a week or even, you know, even a, even a month or maybe even a year, but eventually you're going to wear down hanging with the wrong people. Now, if you're with other Christians, you're going to generally be making better decisions. That doesn't mean you're not going to sin, but it's a whole lot easier to not sin when you're hanging around other Christians who aren't providing you the opportunity. You know, if they're all kind of walking and trying to follow God, it's a little harder to sin. Because now you have to leave that group, go find the people that you want to sin with or find the item that you want to sin with or whatever it is, and sin. But as I've said before, just being in with God's people isn't going to keep you from sinning either. You know, there's a lot of parents who think, well, if I just send my kids to Christian school, they're going to, everything's going to be working. Well, I went to Christian school. Most of the kids in the Christian school were good kids, good Christian kids following Christ. Some of them were very bad kids, and you know what? They found each other very quickly, and they would hang together and get into trouble all the time. They would get into drugs. They would get into alcohol. They'd get into to, uh, sleeping together. They did whatever they wanted to do, and they found others that would do it. Being in with the church or in with the people is not going to prevent you from doing the things you want to do. It just helps you make better decisions in the long run. Okay? Well, I'm being encouraged. You know, everybody else is not, not getting drunk every night. I think I'm going to hang with them and I'll just be, I'll be more like them. You know, everybody else is not sleeping around together, so we'll just we'll, we'll be more like them. You know, everybody else is not stealing or what, you know, name whatever sin you want to put in there. You know, I think I want to be more like them. They seem to be happy, most of them. And we start making better decisions because we're being motivated. Plus, when you come, if you ever sinned and you, you get to church and you feel like everybody knows exactly what it is you've done that, that day, you know, you feel guilty. You know, you're coming in where God is and God just puts conviction on you. you know, don't answer that because we've all done it at some point in our time. You know, usually, you can tell when somebody's not living right, they will stop coming to church as often. 
They will slowly stop, you know, they, they came five times a week, they come four times a week. They come four times a week, they come three times a week. You know, next thing you know, you haven't seen them for weeks, months, years. And you, and you come across and go, well, where have you been? Oh, well, you know, I just kind of drifted. Well, where, where are you going? Oh, you know, I'm not going to church anymore. Well, what you've been doing? Well, you know, well, they don't want to tell you what they've been doing because they know that what they're doing is not godly. And it all starts drifting away getting away from God's word. I can tell you the very first thing that happens, and for each one of us, it's going to be true. If you get to a place where you're not reading your Bible on a routine basis and praying, you're going to find yourself drifting away from God. Even if you stay in church, you're going to find yourself drifting away because you're not being fed. And the next thing you know, it's like, well, you know, I don't even like going to church anymore because all they ever do is talk about the Bible. And I'm really, I'm really not into the Bible that much right now, so... You know, and you know, that pastor, you know, every time he talks, he's saying that, you know, these are sins, you know, all these things that I'm doing, he's calling them sin, you know, and I just don't, I don't like listening to this Bible stuff, so I'm not going, I don't go to church. That's exactly what happens. And it's not that the pastor's being mean to them or anything, they're just teaching the Bible. They're not in the Bible because they don't want the Bible telling them that they're sinning. And we need to keep this in mind. The church is not what's going to keep us away from sin. It's God himself. And we get to God through the word. And we read the Bible every day. Spend some time in it. Study it. Get to know it. Because God's truth is there. These people did not probably even understand that, that Samuel was quoting Deuteronomy to them when he gave them this. And again, it amazes me that back 500 years before this, God says, when you ask for a king, this is what a king will be like. And 500 years later, they're asking for a king. And they're going to regret that they asked for a king. Very quickly after they get Samuel, uh, Saul as their king, they're going to regret that they asked for a king. Because the reality hits them. Oh, Samuel really knew what he was talking about. It's an amazing thing sometimes when you look back and say, you know, my Christian friend who told me not to do this really gave me, you know, wow, they really knew what they were talking about. They gave me, they gave me sound scripture. I didn't want to hear it, but, you know, I wish I had done what they said to do. And this is why us as Christians, when we give counsel, we need to make sure it's godly counsel. This is what God says. This is what God says to do. And I've shared with you, one of the greatest things my dad ever did as a teenager with me is anytime I'd ask him some moral or ethical question, we always went to the Bible. You know, not really what a teenager, you know, looking for a reason not to be obedient was wanting, but, you know, but I wanted to be a Christian, so every time he'd go to the Bible, it worked really well for me. He goes, this is what God says about it. Here we go, find out what God said about it, and, you know, okay, you know, I'm not just rebelling against Dad if I do it, don't do this. I'm rebelling against God, and I didn't want to rebel against God as a teenager, so I usually did what was right. Not that I was perfect, but I did lots of sins, but, you know, I usually tried to try to err and do what God says instead of sin. But I was a sinner just like everybody else. <laughs> and I had plenty of problems. I just didn't get into drugs and alcohol and, and a lot of other things, but I still had other areas. And you know, this is the thing that we want to look at. We've got to be careful how we look at each other because all of us have sin. You know, some of us have very different sins from others. Paul said he was the chiefest of sinners, and he said this at the end of his life, not at the beginning of his life when it would have made sense. You know, when he first became a Christian, you know, he'd been murdering and killing Christians and drawing, you know, dragging them off to the open. It would make perfect sense for him to say, I'm the chiefest of sinners. You know, look what I've done. 
But at the end of his life, he's saying, I'm the chiefest of sinners. Why? Because he started seeing sin the way God sees it. You know, and it's pretty amazing when you start seeing sin the way God sees it. You know, what does God hate? Lying lips, gossip, maligning. You know, those are the things he hates. Those are the things most humans look like, well, not a big deal. You know, at least I'm not murdering people and stealing from them. I mean, I'm tearing them down behind their back and, and saying bad things about them, but there's no, you know, that's really not that bad. And God says, those are the things he hates. Why? Because he knows that we barely can handle the, our tongue. James says the person who can c control their tongue is a perfect man. And unfortunately, none of us ever control our tongue completely. You know, I can't tell you how many times I'll be talking to somebody and all of a sudden in the middle of the conversation realize that we're going into territory I don't want to be in. And most of you have heard me at some point and say, no, we're not going there. We're stopping this conversation at this point. You know, we're, not, we're not moving any further this direction. Basically, without attacking everybody, I'm saying we're, we're entering into gossip. We're entering into unedifying conversation. We're entering into unwholesome conversation. And I'm just as bad as everybody else. I get into it. I usually, I usually get there quickly to say, no, we're not going there. But we all need to get that place where we get so sensitive that when we enter that area, we say, no, got to stop. It's got to stop. I'm not going to go there. My tongue's going to get me into trouble. <laughs> you know, and all of us have said things we wish we hadn't said. You know, something harsh, something mean, something nasty, something that tears somebody down. All of us do it. It happens. And hopefully we get convicted when we do it. We'll make an apology. We'll repent before God. And God's grace will cover it. But once words are out, they're out there. They can't be taken back. Once you said something harsh, it can never come back and never be taken back. They may, you may get forgiven. You may get somebody saying, well, you know, I understand. You're, it's okay. But there's always that nagging part in there. That person said something mean. That person said something not right. And it always haunts in the back of their mind, even if they've forget, forgiven it. And this is why we've got to be careful when we listen to gossip about people. Have you ever had somebody talk about something and you go, well, no, I don't, that person's not like that. And then you, a month later, you hear somebody else say something negative about that person. And you go, well, you know, this is the second time I've heard them. And I don't, I don't think it's true. They're, they're never like that. But each time you hear something negative about something, even if it's not true, puts a doubt in your mind about them and makes it easier for you not to accept them. This is why we need to be able to give grace and mercy to one another, not listen to negatives. You know, in Corinthians, we said, you know, we're not to know anybody after the flesh. As Christians, when we meet other Christians, we're to give them the benefit of the doubt that they're going to follow God. You know, are they going to do it perfectly? No. Are they going to sin? Absolutely. But we need to be able to give them, they're a child of God. You know, and I think about this, you know, how easily do we attack God's children? You know, if we are a parent and somebody attacks your children, right or wrong, if they do it in the wrong way, you don't like to hear it. You know, even if your kid's a terror, you don't want to hear that your kid's a terror usually. And I've had many parents, you know, being, having been a Sunday school director, you know, I'm going, we need to talk to you about your child and their, their behavior in Sunday school. And they go, not my little angel, my, my, my child's perfect. I've heard it more and more <laughs> over the years. And I understand what they're saying on one side. They want to think the best of their children. 
Now, there are those who will go too far the other way. Wait till I get hold of that kid. You know, I'm going to make sure that they never do this again. And I go, that may be a little bit harsh. <laughs> We're just looking for correction, not, not for, you know, the kid never wanting to come to Sunday school anymore. <laughs> uh, but, you know, God wants us to watch our tongues. He wants us to watch how we behave and to serve him. And then it says in verse 18, and you shall cry out in that day because of the king that you asked for. And then it says, but God will not hear. There are times when we make choices that God says, I am not listening to you for a while. You made a choice. I told you what the consequences were going to be. You get to wallow around in the mud until you have completely repented. Not, because usually we repent, and most people's repentance is, God, I'm really sorry I got caught. You know, I'm really sorry that these bad things happened to me. And God says, no, you're not, you're not there yet. You know, how many times for all of us is, we're not really sorry we did something. We're sorry we got caught. And, and that is what God's saying. I'm not going to listen to you. Not until you're ready to fully repent. Not, not because you're sorry you asked for a king and got one. But when you're really sorry that you rejected me. And this is something God will always listen but he wants true repentance. True uh, repentance to him that says, God, I am sorry. I am turning my back on what, what I've been doing. Now, God knows the difference. He's the only one that would know the difference. Sometimes we'll lie to ourselves thinking we're repenting. You know, we can fool others pretty easily. You know, well, I, I'm really sorry I did that. I'll, I, I'll, I won't do it again. And that usually lasts for a very short period of time. God is the one that knows whether you're just trying to put a show on or whether it's real. Which is why in Paul told us we're to examine ourselves to be sure that we're in the faith. Because salvation is so simple. Lord, I'm a sinner. I deserve punishment. Thank you that Jesus died for me. Come into my life. It's very easy words to say. But not everybody who says those words believe them. And Paul says, you know, look at your life. Are you really following God? Is he really in your heart? When you know that he's there, it's easy. I know that I know that God is in my life. There is nobody who can convince me that God is not in my life. It's, you know, all the years that I've gone walking with him, all the years of watching him do things for me and blessing me and giving me and, and giving me the peace, I know that I'm saved. Even when I sin, I know that I'm saved. Now, I'm in the midst of the sin, I might not be so sure. <laughs> But I also know, yes, these are my landmarks. God, you are there. You have done this. He looks for true repentance and true conviction to him. Verse 19, nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but we shall have a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And Samuel heard all the words of the people, and he rehearsed them in, their ear, them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said unto Samuel, Hearken unto their voice, and make them a king. And Samuel said unto the men of Israel, Go you every man unto his city. He gave, them their thing, he gave them what they wanted. God sometimes will give us what we want. You know, and especially if we're basically hell-bent on getting a sin, God will say, Okay, go ahead and do it. You know, go ahead and do it if that's really what you want to do because you're not listening to me. When you've wallowed around in the mud long enough and you want to repent, I'll be there to listen. 
the prodigal son wallowing around finally gets, you know, comes to his senses. I love the way it says it. He came to his senses and said, my father's servants have more food than I have. I'm going to go back and just be a servant. You know, there will come a time if we're really God's child that we will come to our senses and say, God, yeah, just, just bring me back. I, I'll, I'll be the lowest of the lowest for you. Just bring me back. And God says, welcome back, my child. I'm going to put on the righteous robe on you. I'm going, to, I'm going to make a party that you're back. God's grace is so wonderful. That doesn't mean go out and sin so you can have his grace given to you. It's better not to have the consequences for all that sin. Because when we walk in those sins, there's consequences, and they will sometimes be long-term consequences. You know, and you know, these long-term consequences can be very serious. You know, we look at the physical damage that alcohol does to bodies. We look at the physical damage that chain smoking does to the bodies. We look at the, the physical problems that even fornication and adultery can do to the body with all the STDs and everything that are out there that can cause physical damage to the body for one sin. Yeah. For the enjoyment of one sin, we can end up suffering for the rest of our life. And God says, if you're really going to try to get out there and, and make that sin, I'm not, I'm not going to put every road, you know, I'm going to put only so many roadblocks into you. I'm going to give you so many warnings. But if you're going to do it, then you're going to suffer, whatever that suffering might be. And here he says to the people, you know, God did, and I love it in Samuel as if God hadn't heard their answer to give yeah. God, the, you know, all that they said. And God said, you know, give it to them. Give them what they want. And from this point on, we're going to have kings to have to deal with in Israel. Some good kings, more bad kings than good kings. And the good kings would try to bring them back to God, and the bad kings would take them deep into depravity and idolatry. And we see, what is our choice? And it's a picture of our own lives, and we tend to do the same thing. God, you know, I know you're my God, but, you know, I, I don't want to go serve, the, serve some sin for a while. And we may not look at it that way, but that's really what we're telling them. The people weren't looking at, we're going to serve this man. Even though they were warned, they go, we want a king. Why do they want a king? We want a king that, that the king will judge us. He'll go out into battle with us. He will be our leader. You know, all right, so what's different about the judges, guys? <laughs> They were picked by God to be his, his speakers to you. And you didn't have dynasties the way you're going to have with the king. And you can't get rid of the king. You might be able to get rid of a judge who's bad. You know, they did with, you know, Eli's sons, and they, they're doing it with Samuel's sons. But you can't get rid of a bad king, legally, <laughs> or even according to the scripture. But they're going, give it to us. And God says, go ahead and give it to him. Go ahead and give it to them. I'm not going to listen to them when they gripe about their king because now they have another problem. Now they've got to start praying for their king. They've got to start honoring their king. God's put a new authority in their place and said, okay, you wanted a king? Here's your king. Here's your government. You've got to honor your government. You've got to pray for your government. You've got to obey your government. You wanted somebody in my place? Now you got it. And they didn't recognize the consequences of their action. And that's the same thing we do so often. We don't recognize the consequences of all of our actions. All right, we'll close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for your, 
showing us that we make so many decisions and, and try to place you as our God and our King. Lord, help us to stay faithful. Help us to stay tender to your word. Help us to stay listening to your desires and your warnings and be obedient to you. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.